Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innalhamda lillahi nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ghfiruhu wa nasta'hdihi wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina. فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم ما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله it is um, a great honor and a great privilege uh, as always to spend these tuesday evenings with you uh, discussing the meanings of this very special book entitled Ya Ayyuhal Walad or Dear Beloved Son that wasn't written for the son of Imam Ghazali but rather was, was written for one of his uh, advanced level students kind of offering him a summary after all of this learning all of this memorization uh, all of this teaching now this is a student that is now in the advanced stages of his own career he writes to Imam Ghazali requesting a response, asking him, what is it do I need to know for the sake of my next life, the sake of my hereafter? This book was Imam Ghazali's response to that student. We are in the last quarter actually of the book, so we're moving quite quickly, but we've come to a portion where Imam Ghazali says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, قَدْ عَلَمْتَ مِنْ هَاتَيْنِ الْحِكَايَتَيْنِ أَنَّكَ لَا تَحْتَاجُ إِلَىٰ تَكْفِيرِ الْعِلْمِ He said, from this, meaning what we discussed the previous maybe four or five weeks, you know that you are not in need of a lot of knowledge. Strange thing to hear at a class, right? for someone to tell you while teaching a class, you don't really need a lot of knowledge. Here he's saying we should not fetishize knowledge. Some people in their devotion to knowledge, in their interest in religious learning, knowledge becomes almost like a distraction from the main point. This is about getting closer to God. And you don't have to know all of the details of fiqh or all of the details of aqidah to get closer to your creator. You know, both Imam Al-Ghazali and Imam Al-Jawaini, Imam Al-Haramain, at the end of their lives, both of them were recorded as having said, Tubtu ila deen al-ajaiz, I turn to the religion of older women. Tubtu ila deen al-ajaiz, after all of the philosophical exploration, all of the legal exploration, all of the expertise, the great imams just wanted to be your grandmothers. At the end of all of it, they just wanted to be your granny. I mean, that's something to think about. Like what I'm seeking through all of this study, all of this learning, all of this memorization is that pure faith that we've identified in older women. I just want to be like Dina Ajayis. I just want to be, you know, that, that's, that's how I want to die. You know, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
He said in an authentic hadith, he said, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Laysa bi akra'ikum, wa laysa bi a'alamikum, wa lakinnahu shay'un fi sadri, that Abu Bakr, the Siddiq, he's not the most well-read of you in the Qur'an. There were people among the companions more well-versed in Qur'an than Abu Bakr. And he said, he's not the most knowledgeable of you in terms of what's halal and what's haram. There were His daughter knew more than he did about what was halal and what was haram, if we're being honest. But it's something in his heart by his daughter, I mean, say the Aisha, radiallahu anha. It's something in his heart that gives him a distinction above everyone else. Imam Ghazali said, in your learning, in your pursuit of knowledge, if your aim is anything other than what was in the heart of Abu Bakr, you are seeking the wrong thing. And that's all he's saying here. If you want all of these meretricious details and you want to be able to debate with scholars and, you know, leave comments on the YouTube comment section that blow people's minds and you are not seeking knowledge for a pure purpose. You don't need to accumulate a lot of knowledge to be a sincere person. I know people if they were to stand up and lead us in Salat al-Maghrib, even the most basic, you know, the person with uh, the most basic learning in Quran among us would detect all kinds of mistakes in their tajweed. You'd be listening like, that's not how you say that. Even if you haven't studied Quran, just because you've prayed behind people that recite well, you're like, wait, walad zalim? Or is it walad zalim? Wait, wait, hold on. Right? Wait, wait, huh? And that person may be the most pious person I know. The most pious person I know. One of my friends, I've said this at least three times in this space, but it, it, it's worth mentioning again. I said, who's the most pious person you know? He said, my grandmother. I said, what did she, what did she do? Tell me, maybe I can emulate her. He said, she does a khatam of the Quran almost every night. She finishes the Quran almost every night. And I was like, she's hafidah? She memorized the Quran? Right, this is like, like a, a, an ancient story of like a saint or something. You finish the Quran every night? He said, no, she's not hafidah. I said, oh, she reads very quickly. No, she's illiterate. He was an Iraqi brother. No, she's illiterate. Okay, she's not hafidah. She's not a person who reads. How can she finish the Quran every night? He said that she makes wudu, opens the mushaf, takes her right index finger, runs her finger over the pages and says as she's doing it, this is true, 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 until she finishes the Quran, right? Not very knowledgeable, but very pious, very rooted in her faith. And so here Imam Ghazali is saying, you don't need a lot of knowledge. You don't need to know a lot of meretricious details and you know, stuff about the quiddities and qualities of Godhead and, in order to be a pious person. He continues, well, and now, 
ما يجب على سالك السبيل الحق I am going to tell you what is required for the person traversing the path of truth or in truth. Both translations are good. And this will give us occasion, the first thing he mentions will give us occasion to talk about something controversial. Now I have all of your attention. Something very controversial. He says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to clarify for you what you really need. You don't need a lot of knowledge, but I'm going to tell you what you actually need if you want to walk the path of God in truth. The first thing he mentions, أَنَّهُ يَنْبَغِي لِسَّالِكِ شَيْخٌ مُرْشِدٌ مُرَبِّنٌ The first thing that a person that wants to traverse the path of God in truth needs is a teacher that rears them, trains them, develops them. But he said, Shaykhun Murabbin, a Shaykh Murabbi. Now, the reason I mentioned uh, that this would probably be something controversial is that relationship, because it has been subject to so much abuse. So many people have been taken advantage of, sometimes financially, sometimes physically, sometimes spiritually, that I find many moderns have very little patience for this idea of having a sheikh. In fact, if we are being honest, and you strike me as, a, you know, as an audience with whom I can be honest, some of us regard all of it as downright cultish, right? When you see people and they're crowding around this person and they're kissing their hand and, you know, you're like, nah, that's not for me. <laughs> nah, you know, I just don't, I, I, you know, sometimes I think I'm just not trusting enough for that. Why would I, you know, who is this person? I, you know, how do I know that they are what they claim to be? You know, we have all of these ideas, right? And I want to, um, you know, this, this might be unpopular with some people, but I want to validate those feelings. I think that that skepticism, that uh, initial distrust, I think that's a good thing to have. I think that's a good way to, when you see something like that, wait a minute, what, what, am I, what am I seeing here? But what I will offer is that you have to separate some of those traditions, some of those etiquettes, right? Some of those modalities of instruction with the idea of having a teacher who is for you a mirror, a sister that is a mirror for you, a brother that is a mirror for you, someone in whose good conduct and good character, you can see your weaknesses. It's important to have somebody that you rely on in that way. Now, you don't necessarily have to formalize that relationship to say, you are my person. I don't take from anybody else. I don't listen to anybody else. But you need to have people that you can count on to tell you the truth. Funny story. I was in Yemen 
And I was still very much, I was still very much on the fence about this point. And there was a brother in Yemen who was very committed to his sheikh. He was very committed to his teacher. And we were eating breakfast together. And he was telling me that you should have a sheikh. You should, you should have somebody that you can rely on to tell you what's true, help you identify your weaknesses, take your hand as you walk the path of God. And as he was saying this to me, he had like milk in his beard. And he looked so silly making this impassioned point with like milk on his beard. He's like really serious. And I said to him, I said, you have milk on your beard as you're speaking to me about this. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, yes, I have milk on my beard and I can't see it and I look silly. What then for my heart? What is in my heart that I can't see and I look silly? What is in my heart that I can't see and I look foolish? In the same way that you point that milk out to me, you have milk on your beard and you're trying to make a point. Who is going to point out for me the diseases that I have in my heart as I'm trying to make my religious stands? And then I kind of understood it was the most, it was the weirdest, most roundabout way that he actually won me over to his side of the argument. I'm like, I kind of see what you're saying, man. <laughs> like, you know, and I thought I was making him look foolish by saying, you have milk in your beard as you're trying to talk about this. You're right. And I can't even see it. What then for my heart? So you don't have to formalize that relationship. It doesn't have to, you know, one of the things that I've observed among many people close to me is many of them have a great devotion to their therapist or um, um, different kinds of counsel. Um, but because they don't feel bound in a restrictive way to the counsel of their therapist, I don't think the relationship strikes them as cultish, uh, um, you know, overly hierarchical, uh, 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 liberate, you know, uh, like uh, autonomy obliterating. None of that is really there, right? Because they understand that I come to you voluntarily so that you can help me. I think we have to establish relationships with spiritual teachers that are of a similar character. Not exactly the same, but you don't have to feel like if I enter um, uh, this person's spiritual apprenticeship, I'm bound to this for the rest of my life. This is a bond that can never be broken. You know, it's like blood in, blood out. If I decide that, you know, I don't know that this is working for me spiritually, then I've betrayed my teacher. I've betrayed myself. No, no, it's just, I sought instruction from this person. This person was helping me. Among maybe other people that were helping me, I didn't really deem the instruction um, 
useful, beneficial, and I decided to move on. That's okay. You can do that, right? But it's important to have teachers that you rely on. And they should be people that you regard as people of good character. And they should be people above all else that you trust. Someone that you trust. You know, Dr. Omar, he used to say, ijtihad or considered decision-making based on the text is for the scholars. But ijtihad of the scholars is for everyone. That you get to think critically about whose instruction you feel comfortable with. And there could be somebody with credentials, with a good reputation, but you don't feel that connection. And that's fine. I don't feel that, I don't feel that connection. You know, I remember um, talking to Usama, Allah before he passed away. And he said to me, he said, you know, the silliest argument that anybody could ever engage is trying to convince another person that their teacher is as great that, as they think they are. Like a person is trying to convince you, no, no, my, you, have to, you have to learn from my teacher. He's the reason that it rains in the Western hemisphere. He's the reason the sun comes out in the morning. If it weren't for my teacher, all of the fish in the sea would die. You must come and study with this man. And then somebody introduces you, then he introduces you to that teacher and you're like, mashallah, he's a, he seems like a really solid, good Muslim. Solid, good Muslim. Solid, good Muslim. Do you know who this is? This is the Mujeddid of the 21st century. You know, I've been in rooms where people were doing this. You're like, I said he was a solid, good brother. Brother? You think he's your brother? I said, subhanAllah. Solid, good uncle? <laughs> I don't know, you know. And what Osama said to me, he said, when you have a teacher from whom you take in that way, you have to recognize that what is between your heart and the heart of your teacher is something special that other people may not have access to. Just like what is in between your heart and the hearts of your friends, your heart and the heart of your spouse. Other people might look and say, you know, she's a good sister. Hadiyah Muhammad, good sister. Man, this is the best of all of North Carolina right here. Because that's how I see her. You better just see her as a good sister. If you see her as more than that, maybe there's a problem. You know, babe, maybe you're right. What do you mean I'm right? I'm supposed to see her like that. Not you. Right? Because it's a personal relationship. It's a personal relationship. So if you have a teacher and you are compelled by this teacher, you feel can, you're, you're satisfied with their instruction, and you rely on them to help guide your step as you walk the path of God. It is not necessary that everybody else think that they're a great friend of God, that everybody thinks you don't have to argue with anybody, that she's the greatest thing since sliced bread in the wheel. You just say, I find great benefit in her instruction. I find great benefit in his instruction. And that's it. 
If you don't, that's okay. Maybe that was something that God placed between my heart and hers, my heart and his, right? He says, Imam Ghazali says, لِيُخْرِجَ الْأَخْلَاقِ السُّوءَ مِنْهُ بِتَرْبِيَّتِهِ وَيَجْعَلَ مَكَانَهَا خُلُقًا حَسَنًا To remove the bad character, you need a teacher that focuses on removing your bad traits of character and replacing them with praiseworthy character. Suhba, companionship. This is one of the most underutilized strategies, means of attaining good character and one of the most important means of attaining good character. We, you know, Dr. Jackson talks about as, you know, moderns, we live in a 21st century cult of genius where we think our becoming is always going to be through something cerebral. That if I'm going to be different, someone is going to convince me. Someone is going to sit me down, talk to me, and convince me to be different. Whereas with the Prophet wasallam, and this is kind of a fancy word, people learn from him by what's called mimesis. They learn mimetically which means learning not through, um, you know, um, kind of uh, uh, argumentation or to convince somebody of the superiority of something rationally. It is to inspire them with your example, to inspire them that I might not understand how or why you are this way, but I want to be like you. You need someone that inspires you in that way. I want to be like her. I want to be like him. I might not have the words to explain why or how, but I want to be like this person. You know, whenever I see people that are very patient, I know that they cannot explain to me how to be patient. I just try to mimic them. Right? When you think mimesis, think mimic. I think they're from a similar root. The word is Greek, but I just try to mimic them. So when my kids are like calling my name and dad do this, dad do this, I just think to myself, what would Will Caldwell do? Hmm, what would Will Caldwell do? He probably would just sit nodding his head patiently complying with all of their requests, right? This is a mimetic, you know, this is, you know, people that inspire you. I remember once, um, you know, Dr. Jackson was talking about the sunnah and he was saying that, you know, the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he could inspire people. And this is one of the reasons why we say the sunnah of Muhammad. We don't say the ta'aleem of Muhammad. We don't say the teachings of Muhammad. See, ta'aleem would be the teachings of Muhammad. We say the sunnah of Muhammad, sallallahu Meaning, even if I don't understand, I want to be that kind of person. 
I want to be patient like that. I want to be generous like that, right? You know, I've told this story, you know, many times, but it, it, it bears, you know, mentioning again that um, there was a brother that was having a very difficult time embracing his role as a stepfather. You know, he married a woman, she had children, he didn't have any children. And he thought that it was going to be easy to blend the family. Like, you know, how hard can it be to take care of a kid, right? But as it turned out, it was very difficult for him for different reasons. One, he was not prepared to, um, you know, he didn't realize beforehand how much he was going to have to physically serve this child. He didn't realize, like, this entails a lot of khidmah. It entails a lot of service. And for people that have children, we know your ability to serve your children is, it's like, it's grown as your children grow. So when they make that big mistake at 18, it's like, I've been, like, storing up all of the rahmah. I've been storing up all of the mercy. I've been storing up all of the understanding for this moment. It's taken me 18 years of understanding, growing my patience to put my arm around you and say, don't worry about it, baby, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna figure this out together. Now, if that happened to me in year one, I wouldn't have that same uh, 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 reservoir of patience, understanding. So at six, you don't need that much patience. You don't need that much mercy, but you need about six years worth to deal with all of those questions, to deal with, you know, you need about six years worth. When you come into the picture, becoming a step-parent to a six-year-old, you don't have those six years worth of training, but you're right on the job. And it's difficult. It's like, that was hard for him. The second thing that was hard for him the child's father both in the fact that of course to have you know she continues to have a relationship with him his wife is going to continue to have a relationship with him they have to co-parent together this is our child and he didn't realize just how large his influence would loom in his own house. Like, it's kind of like all three of us are making decisions about all of our children, <laughs> you know, because they're siblings, even when he had his own children. Um, also, this was a very potent reminder of the romantic connection that his wife had with her ex-husband. Like, you know, he couldn't pretend like she was the only person he ever loved because the child is clearly an indication that that isn't the case. So there was something of his gaira, of his protective jealousy that was just agitated by the presence of this child. Like, you know, you were married to this man and the child is this lasting connection that you will always have to him. 
you know, it just kind of rubbed him the wrong way. And he said that he sought all kinds of help, people explaining it to him, books people recommended, but none of it could really move his heart. Like he said, when the child called his name, it was like somebody scratching a chalkboard, right? And the child called him by name, Ahmed. That's not his real name. I wouldn't tell you his real name. Right? I'm just giving you an example. Ahmed. Oh. And my teacher said that one day he was reading the seerah of Ibn Kathir. And he came to a vignette in the seerah in which the Prophet wasallam said to Umm Salama, after the passing of her husband, Abu Salama, he said, you know, be patient, right? Being a widow. Allah could give you someone even better than Abu Salama. She looked at the Prophet والسلام, and she said, who could ever be better than Abu Salama, my late husband? And the Prophet والسلام, said to her, you know, I am the messenger of Allah. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And she said, wait, 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 hold on. Are you suggesting that you and I could be together? That we could be married? And the prophet confirmed. He said, that's what I'm suggesting. And then she said, absolutely not. She said, it's, it's not that I don't have a raghba fiqh. It's not that, I, um, that I'm like revolted by the idea, but... I have my reasons. I just don't think it would work. Now I want you to pause for a minute. This is what separates the Prophet ﷺ from every megalomaniacal cult leader. That a woman who believes that he is good enough to be her prophet feels completely comfortable and validated telling him, but you're not good enough to be my, I don't think you would work as my husband. She has no fear of being coerced. She has no fear, you know, she knows that he's not going to say, what? Okay, see if your dua gets answered. You do realize I have angels that back me up, right? You don't want to be my wife? SubhanAllah. No, no, the prophet is forced to say to her what every man who's rejected by a woman he wants to marry says. He said, why not? Right, this is the messenger of Allah. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam, why not? Why, 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 why can't you be my wife? She said, I have three reasons I cannot be married to you. One, you're married to other women and I'm a very jealous woman, right? So polygyny doesn't work for me. He, she said, two, I'm not young. I'm not a young woman, right? And that's all she said, she said I'm not young. Three, I have children that I have to care for. The Prophet ﷺ said, as for your jealousy, Allah will help you with that. Brothers, don't try this at home, man. Don't. Every time I narrate this story, I see a young man with a twinkle in his eye, thinking, that's what I'm supposed to say. No, <laughs> right? That's how you do that. But I do want you to observe the emotional intelligence of the Prophet Think about this. 
he did not give her some long, tired, drawn out legal argument about the verses of the Quran, and he didn't tell her, this is the sunnah of the prophets before me. Suleiman did it. What's wrong with it? Dawood used to do it. What's wrong with it? He didn't say this. He didn't say, if you don't like this, there's something deficient in your Islam. I respect your individuality. I respect your voice. You don't like this. The only thing I can offer you is that I will pray to Allah to help you accept it. I mean, as a husband, I'm seeing a lot of maturity there. Like, I'm not going to like argue with you and all of these fictitious legal arguments. You don't like this. I respect the fact that you don't like this. I'm not gonna try to convince you to like something you don't like, but I will ask God to help you accept it. He said, as for the fact that you are not young, I appreciate your maturity. And I too am not young. You're not young, I'm not young, it's okay. As for the fact that you have children, the Prophet Wasallam said, Wallahi, your children will be like my children. I will treat them like they're my children. It's, my teacher said he read this to the brother and the brother was crying. And when he gathered himself, he said, I know that being a stepfather is not going to be easy, but for the first time in my life, I want to be a good stepfather because the Prophet ﷺ was a good stepfather. I want to do it. That is what we mean by my Macy's. People tried to explain to him, hey man, you know, there's a chance for you to earn reward with Allah. Uh, the, the explanations just didn't move him. But when he learned that the Prophet ﷺ embraced that role, the Prophet married a woman that had children, he embraced the role. We were studying the Shema'il of Imam At-Tirmidhi. Sanya studies the Shema'il of At-Tirmidhi. MashaAllah. We came to a hadith where the son of Umm Salama is standing at the door. Right? The Prophet looked at him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and said, Ya Bunayya, Karib ilayya. Oh, my son, come close to me. Come close to me. And then he said, the Prophet sat him right next to him. And the Prophet started preparing his food for him. Now, this is an adult. This is a full-grown man. He said, the Prophet started preparing my food for me. And then he put the food in front of me. And when I read this, right, with the class, I was like, subhanAllah. The Prophet said, I will treat your son like he's my, I will treat your children like they're my children. And here's the, here's the proof. Here's the proof. Here's a story where he says, oh, yeah, Bunaya, oh, my dear son, come sit next to me. Come be close to me. And then the prophet started preparing his food for him. Here, eat. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. What Imam Ghazali is talking about in terms of role models, women that you can model, men that you can model, people that provide proximate examples that inspire you in that way. People that you look at and you say, this is how Islam is supposed to be practiced. This is how it looks. 
Look at how he is with his children. Look at how he is with his wife. Look at how he is with his career, his profession. Look at how she treats people. Look at how she is with her career. Look at how she is with her children. Someone that you can look at and you say, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but that's where I want to go. And I do think having someone in your life like that is of tremendous benefit, tremendous benefit. One of the benefits that Imam Ghazali mentions is through their instruction, you will replace bad character with good character. I'm gonna tell you a story about somebody here in Chicago who's been in this space. And if you have an opportunity to meet him, you should. I don't intend to embarrass him, but I feel like I have to because I love him that much. Sheikh Muhammad Imam is the Imam at a masjid known as the Chicago Islamic Center. The real name is Masjid al-Qassam, but for the yellow pages, we say Chicago Islamic Center, right? Sheikh Muhammad, one of the sweetest people, one of the most genuine people I have ever laid eyes on. And when I see him, it's just a reminder of how I want to be, right? I remember uh, there was a brother. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that when you find these kinds of people, you can learn from their silence like you learn from their speech. Sheikh Muhammad was an old school Azhari Shafi'i. He practiced, you know, he practiced Islam according to the Shafi'i Madhab. So for Salat al-Fajr, he would always make Dua al-Qunut. Right? He would make Dua al-Qunut in Fajr all the time, which is something that some Shawafi'a, something they do. There was a brother who was new to Islam, but very zealous. Someone had told him that this is a bid'ah. To do this every day, is a, this is a, a blameworthy innovation in the religion. The Prophet would only do this at times of war or at times of drought or at times of famine. Like there was some um, calamity where the Prophet would make in Fajr, but regularly he didn't do it. And if you see somebody doing it every day and there's no calamity, no famine, no drought, no war, this is a bid'ah. So this brother praying Fajr behind Sheikh Muhammad after raised his hand to Sheikh, you're doing bid'ah. I was like, subhanAllah. <laughs> you know Sheikh Muhammad said, MashaAllah. This is, you're talking about, he said, MashaAllah, thank you for pointing that out to me because I'm always in need of people that can tell me where I need to improve in my practice of Islam. He said, if you come and you spend the entire day with me, maybe you can point out more things that I'm doing wrong so that I can bring them into conformity with the sunnah. Can you come tomorrow morning, right? I'm going to give you a chance to get your, you know, organize your day. Spend the day with me 
and show me more things that I'm doing wrong. The brother said, okay. Now this brother's been Muslim for a couple of years. Okay, I'll come. Sheikh Muhammad said, but I start my day at about 3 a.m. I start with, I start with Tiamalaya. You have to come at three. Brother said, I'll be here. Sheikh Muhammad lives in the masjid. Right? He has a, his family is in Alexandria. He has a little small compartment in the masjid. That's where he sleeps. That's where he eats. He's accessible 24 hours a day. Living in the masjid, he takes all of his earnings, sends them back to his family in Alexandria. Visits them for a month every year, comes back to Chicago, works as an imam. This is his life. The brother came at three o'clock. Sheikh Muhammad was there reciting Quran, making tahajjud. Then people started coming in from Fajr. Sheikh Muhammad was there to greet them as they came into the masjid. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. Then, praise the sunnah of Fajr, praise Fajr without making kunut. Right? To, without making kunut to satisfy this brother. Then he taught a dars after Fajr. Then he went back into his office, had breakfast with some brothers, all kinds of people asking questions, family issues. He continued doing that until about 11 o'clock. Then somebody came in, he taught them a book, maybe Fatah al-Bari or something like that. Now it's time for Dhuhr, right? He teaches the book all the way until the time of Dhuhr. Then he leads the people in Dhuhr. Then he takes a nap. Then he wakes up, he's teaching again until Asr. Then they pray Asr. Then he, uh, I think, like took some time to run some errands after Asr. Do some personal stuff. Went around, go to Family Dollar, pick this up, pick that up. I think they even dropped some things off at some people's homes, stuff like that. Come back to the masjid for Maghrib. Pray Maghrib, pray the Sunnah of Maghrib. He has never said to this brother, this is halal, this is haram, this is sunnah, this is the madhab, this is the hukum, this is the ruling. Just come roll with me. They hang out until the time of Isha. And after Isha, he said, you didn't show me anything else. You didn't, you didn't, I was waiting for you to tell me more. More bid'ah that I was doing. This brother was crying. He said, I've never seen anybody who adheres to the sunnah like this man. His life is sunnah. See, when you find people like that, grab hold to them and don't let them go. Now, all of you are going to go over to 63rd and Homer because you want to see Sheikh Muhammad. <laughs> He's in Egypt right now. Right? He's visiting his family right now. Right? But I'm talking about people like that very valuable. You can put a smile on anybody's face. Now, his English is better than he pretends it to be. Right? He acts like, I only speak Arabic. I only speak Arabic. But like, like if the police come into the mission, I'm sorry, sir, what do you need? I'm like, subhanAllah, what do you need? You do speak English. He said, yeah, shwaya, shwaya, God. I said, no, you, you speak English when you need to. <laughs> you, know what I'm saying? you know, right? But even if you don't speak English, go visit him. If you don't speak Arabic, go visit him. Spend some time with him. You know, my daughter would just come with me. You, you go to see Sheikh Muhammad. Every time I would come and he would give her a $50 bill. You know, right? He, he would just give her $50. Then... She was jumping around. He said, wait, wait, you have other children, right? How can she walk in without giving them one? 50 for Najashi, 50 for Makita. 
right? Then I'll say, and he said, for you, Ubedullah, take this Barbican, this little drink, this little malt drink. He's like, you know, I'm not giving you any money, but I can't let you leave my office without taking something. You know, it's just, he doesn't have to speak to teach. You just have to be in his company and you learn from him. You know, one Sheikh Muhammad story that I will never forget. There was a Muslim, an African-American Muslim from that neighborhood that lived around like 63rd in St. Louis. He came home from prison. He was um, mentally unstable, had some kind of episode and killed his family. Killed his family. They knew that he had embraced Islam in prison. So when they did like the press release and like police were there, they just went to the mosque to try and get some spiritual counsel for the family. And because Meshul and Qassam was close, they just got grabbed Sheikh Muhammad. Now, he doesn't even speak English. When I saw the thing on Channel 7, he was standing there with the family, comforting the women, comforting the children, hugging the people in the family. He doesn't even speak English. I started crying. I said, he should have called me. That's what I do. I went, I said, Sheikh Muhammad, why were you there? He said, they told me a Muslim needed my help. What could I say? They said, there were Muslims who needed my help. I went where they told me to go and I just tried to offer them dua, prayer, the things that I know how to offer people. He's a person like that. But he didn't say, wait a minute, I, I don't have the cultural competency. They're Muslim. I'm just trying to help people, right? When you find people like that, just observing them is a benefit to your character. Observing people like Dr. Omar is a benefit to your character, right? Observing people like Tamara Gray, right? It's a benefit to your character. Observing people like that, just watching them, right? And I think that, um, I would be remiss if I didn't say there are many, I think when women hear adults like this, they always think about finding a male. There are women that you can observe and emulate, that you can, you know, take guidance from and seek instruction from. They might be a little harder to find, but there are women, there are lots of women like that, that have lived our tradition at a very high level, the only difference is that the men like that are very well known. The women like that prefer to be hidden. If you go to one of them, like, you know, someone said that I could maybe learn from you. The women are like, oh, my secret is getting out. Who told you this? SubhanAllah. Yes, you can learn from me. But I would have preferred that nobody told you. The men are all too proud. I heard that I can learn from him. Yes, you can. You see, so it's a little harder to find, but they're there. You have to seek them out. Right? We're going to stop just in five minutes. Imam Ghazali says, tarbiyah, the meaning of spiritually raising somebody. Yashbahu, yashbuhu, yashbahu, falahi, ashawka wa yukhrijun nabatat. He said, this Tarbiyah is like what a farmer does 
when the farmer plants the seed and then eventually the plants grow. You want someone that will spiritually help to plant seeds for you so that those seeds can blossom, so that they can grow. Someone that will literally grow you, right? Someone that will, you know, water you, grow you, right? Develop you, cultivate you. You're looking for someone like that, right? And he says, it's like a farmer, right? Maybe this is a good, because now he's going into a separate thought. Inshallah, we'll stop there. واستغفر الله لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.